right? Uh, <laughs> good morning. My name is Mo. Uh, I am one of the pastors here at City Light Church. And man, today is our fourth and final Advent sermon of the entire series. Uh, and I'm excited about it because that means it's two days away from Christmas when we get to celebrate that our King really did come. Like he was really born, he really did break uh, the bond of heaven meets earth, and he was God with us. And it's a beautiful thing that we get to celebrate every single year. Uh, If you're new with us, uh, when we say the word Advent, it's it's simply a word that means coming. And the one that we're looking forward to coming is uh, of noble birth, is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. And so that is what Christmas is about, right? The Messiah really did come. He really was born of a virgin. And uh, so, yeah. That's what we're celebrating. Now, that coming, though, uh, was actually anticipated long before Jesus arriving on the scene, actually. Uh, In fact, you can look back in Genesis where Adam and Eve are getting kicked out of Eden uh, because of their sin. You see God make a promise with them saying, hey, I'm going to send a son who will stamp out the head of Satan. And that person was Jesus Christ. He actually did do that when he came. He conquered both Satan, sin, and death on the cross. And so our text this morning is also pointing to that very thing. Uh, in fact, it's an Old Testament book, which means that, yes, we're going to talk about Jesus from the Old Testament. The Old Testament talks about Jesus. And so if you have a Bible, hope that you do, uh, open up to Zechariah chapter 9. Uh, and yes, I said Zechariah. Uh, and no, you're not mediocre if you don't know where that is. I actually had to look in the table of contents, uh, but I can help you out a little bit. If you know where the last book of the Old Testament is, it's Malachi. Go back one, there's Zechariah. Very simple, easy to find at that point. Uh, so we find ourselves in this book book called Zechariah. Uh, The promised Messiah, the Son of God, has not arrived yet. Uh, They're still in hopeful expectation of the Messiah to come, uh, meaning this is before the 2,000-year-ago event of Christ being born, before he died, before he was in a barn in Bethlehem. It's actually around 500 years before that event took place in the first place, right? So, so you got Israel. Uh, they're 20 years out of exile from Babylon. And, and so to give a little backstory on that, God, uh, in judgment of Israel, sent them into exile in, under the authority and rule of Babylon. Did that for about 70 years, and they're now 20 years away from that 70-year exile. And it's kind of rough for them right now. Like They were hoping to rebuild their nation, but there's nations around them that are creating chaos, and the morale of Israel is starting to drop. The hope that they had is starting to dwindle, and so they needed a boost. And, and so God said, you know what? I want to encourage my folks. They're discouraged after the exile because they thought that once they came out of exile, what would happen is that the king of the Davidic line would come through and, and be the Messiah. The temple would be rebuilt, but none of that had taken place yet. So God, through Zechariah, says, hey, I'm going to give my people hope. I'm going to restore the hope for my people. Even though they're waiting, even though they're discouraged, I want to say, hey, continue to hope in God the Messiah is coming. And so that's where we find ourselves this morning uh, in verse 9, if you look at it with me. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so the the first hope that God gives to them and and to us is the hope of the first advent, the hope uh, from the first advent. And so in verse 9, God speaks through his prophet and says, he tells his people, hey, rejoice and shout aloud. And and when he calls them Zion or Jerusalem, uh, he's basically summarizing the whole of Israel, right? So he's like, all y'all. Like all y'all people, right? Like that's, that's who he's talking to. And notice when he's talking to them, he calls them daughter. 
Like that, it's just a, a beautiful thing because it's giving you the tone by which God is addressing his people. It's the same tone that I would use to call in hope and joy in my, my, baby, my baby girl Evangeline. And so you can hear God's voice saying, baby girl, take joy. Be sure of the victory. Your, your king, your conqueror, your savior, he, he's coming. You can take joy in that. Rejoice in that. And so can, can you imagine? Like that's, that's how God is speaking hope over his daughter, over his people in Israel. He's saying, man, I know that you're, you've been released from captive, captivity. I know the Messiah hasn't come yet, but he's coming. Just rest assured he is coming. I know what you're looking for. And the prophet says, rejoice, right? Like in the midst of it, he says, rejoice, and not only rejoice, shout aloud. And so when he tells him to shout aloud, well, he's, he's talking about a victory cry. He's saying, shout as though the victory has already been won. Shout as though he's already come. Rejoice in that reality. And so what he's delivering to them, this is not a hopeful wishing, right? Like a lot of us had a hopeful wishing that Scott Frost would bring a Big Ten championship this year somehow without the actual team and staff to do it, right? Like we had a hopeful wishing and that's okay. We can have hopeful wishes like that. Um, and then some of y'all might have a hopeful wish, wish that, you know, your boo might actually get that gift finally this year for Christmas, whether it be diamond earrings or new J's for the guy, whatever that might be, that's hopeful wishing, right? But what God is saying, there's a confident hope, one that you can actually place your faith in and, and your complete confidence in, and that's the hope that he's referring to here. He's referring to a confident hope that was far better than they could ever imagine or think of. God gives Israel a few reasons why, though. A few reasons why they can rejoice now, even though the Messiah has not arrived yet. That hope has not come yet. And the reason for their rejoicing actually goes beyond the fact that he's coming. He's always been coming. It actually goes into what kind of king he will be. What kind of king he will be that will rule over them. And Zechariah says that, behold, Your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so he lists off four characteristics of this king, right? Uh, And mind you, Israel at this point were hoping for a king that looked just like every other king. Uh, they were hoping for a king that would come in with power and force and a sword and, a, and just come and take over everything. Like, they wanted him to come in and ride on and, and take over the entire world uh, basically by force. Uh, they wanted a guy to come in and, and start a war and start fighting. And they expected a king to be just like every other king. They expected for God to send someone on a war horse. However, Zechariah, though, he says, no, 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 the king that you, that you hope in, is much different than anything you've ever seen. In fact, he's better than anything, well beyond anything you could ever expect. And so the first characteristic that Zechariah gives them about this king is that God's king will come in righteousness. That the king will come as innocent. He will be just. He will be without any error. You see, every king that has ever ruled over Israel up until this point has not been a great king, has been full of error, and has not reigned in righteousness and purity, but instead for pride and arrogance. And see, most of these kings, they would sacrifice the people for the sake of themselves, right? So that they can get power, they can get wealth. But the king that God is promising says, no, I'm not, he's not going to come and seek power and wealth. No, he's going to sacrifice himself for his people, not the other way around. That, that he'd be a king that would perfectly seek out the best for his people. It's, I mean, think about that. Their first king that they had was King Saul. And to put it lightly, dude was prideful and arrogant, right? Like King Saul really liked King Saul. And so he would sacrifice people so that he can go to war and win more victory and have more pride and more arrogance heaped onto himself. King Saul was so much for King Saul. But the Messiah, 
He'd be a king that sought the betterment of his people. He'd be a king who would lead out of purity and justice. And not only that, he would be a savior. So the second characteristic is God's king will be a savior. Verse 9 says that he will be salvation. And that's exactly what he would bring. A people, th- these people had victories, right? Like they knew what victory felt like, but they also knew what it felt like to be on the short end of the stick too, right? So like you look in the Old Testament, you see this group of people, they get victory because God gave it to them, and then they just start to walk away, right? They got this good, precious gift, and then they start walking away, and they end up in exile and all these other things. And he's saying, no, I'm going to give you a com- complete and perfect victory. I'm going to make you conquerors with this king. He's going to bring about salvation. But, but the, the promise is that... This righteous king would be their savior and not they themselves. What I'm getting at here is that, you see, they didn't know the enemy they had that they could not fight themselves. And so this king, this righteous king that would come about would actually come about in a victory well beyond anything they could imagine because he would actually fight their real enemy. And their real enemy enemy wasn't Babylon. It was something far greater. However, his character was both pure and he was a savior, But the third characteristic is that he was a meek king, that he'd be a meek king. In verse 9, it says the word humble. And when you look at that word, it's not humble being, hey, I'm just self-deprecating. I never take credit for what I do kind of humble. No, the word there is a biblical word that they often use in the Old Testament of meek. And, And the word meek for them actually connotes poverty. It means poor. And so this king, he wouldn't come in royalty and privilege. No, he'd come in weakness as a poor man. That's what kind of king he is. So he would, be, he would come as the lowest of lows, as a poor man, not with royalty, not with royal garb. No, he'd come as the poorest of poor. He'd represent the oppressed of the world, and he'd be among the least of these. That's the kind of king he would be. You see what God is showing his people here? He's showing them that the savior of the world, the king that these God's people are looking for, the one that's destined to come, is not going to come in power but meekness. He's not going to come with his forceful iron fist or, or just a forcefulness of his power. He would not be the oppressor, but he'd come in the form of the oppressed. He would come as a slave. Isn't that a unique thing in history? That the person of power, a king, a ruler, would come not as the strong of the world, but the weak. So often we think of, of, of power and of kingship and of leadership. We equate it to strength and progress and power, dominion, prosperity, and even decision-making ability. But here God promises a king that's going to come in weakness, poverty, and categorically voiceless. And not only that, he'd be a king that would not rule with the upper or the middle class, but the poor of the world. The disenfranchised, the marginalized, the oppressed of the world, that's who he would come and be with and rule with and reign with, are those people. You see, this is the opposite of the way the world works, isn't it? Like, the, the world does not think this way. In fact, we don't think this way. That's not how we would visualize someone who's successful at having a huge impact, right? We think of mass followings, uh, a bunch of people on Twitter, Instagram, or whatever social media outlet you have, um, whatever that might be. And, and we look at people like saying, okay, these men or wi- and women won't relate to the successless, right? That's the way we think about it. But the king that they promised, that God would promise here through Zechariah, that, that king would not come in on a horse or a war horse, but he'd come in riding a donkey, a colt, a a foal of a donkey. And so the last characteristic of this king is that God's king would be a king of peace and not war in his initial coming. He'd be a king of peace and not war. 
At the end of verse 9, Zechariah says that the king would come on a donkey. And so most kings at that time did not come in on donkeys unless they were surrendering. Uh, they usually came in on a war horse because it was a tool of war. And they're coming in waving the flag saying, hey, you're defeated. I'm the victor. You're the loser. That's how this works here, right? Like that's how the king would come into that. But God's king here says, no, he's going to ride on a donkey, which basically bears in mind he's going to ride in in peace. And at this point for us, we are post-Christmas, post-resurrection followers of Jesus. Well, for us, it's, that donkey's got it, to—it's got to kind of chime something in our minds, right? Like just something seems eerily similar to what we've seen before. And so, look at Matthew twenty-one. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethage, to, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, "Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me." If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, catch this, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. You see that? That's what they were talking about. The the righteous savior, the meek king, the one who comes to rule in peace is actually Jesus Christ himself. He's coming, and he fulfilled exactly what he said. Israel was waiting for centuries for this Messiah to come, and he comes in and saves the day. He actually comes in on a cult exactly the way God promised he would come in. He would be the fulfillment of the hope, the first advent. You see, the Jews here, they waited a long time to see it, but Zechariah said, you can still wait because he will come. And he did it, right? Like, Jesus was, was a righteous king, right? 33 years, 33 and a half years or so. Perfect. Never sinned in his entire lifetime here. He, he is salvation, is he not? He is our Savior and the Savior of Israel because he went to the cross and ultimately died and rose from the grave. He conquered Satan, sin, and death. And then he was definitely meek. If you look at Jesus' life and ministry, he did not bro out with religious types, but with the poor, the oppressed, and the disenfranchised. So he was meek, and he definitely didn't come in with sword and war horse, but on a donkey in peace. Instead of, instead of sacrificing others for his sake, he sacrificed himself for ours. That's the kind of king he is. So that's the, that's the first advent that our faith and our hope is grounded in. That is, that is where our hope comes from, by the way. Like Jesus is the king that was promised, and he did exactly what he said he would do. He was born in a manger. Uh, He grew up and did ministry perfectly as an innocent man, died the death that he didn't deserve, and guess what? He didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. That is a beautiful hope that we have here, family. He was exactly what God would prophesy would happen. This this truth, this reality for us, though, it's got to be bigger than just, okay, great, cool story, Right? Like, it it should stir up in us this hopeful expectation in him because it really did happen. It was a fact, a reality for us. And what the command in this text says is that we should have joy, that we should rejoice and and, and shout aloud because the victory has been won. Amen? No, y'all don't hear me yet. That's all right. We'll keep going. Um, So this gets to our second hope, okay? We have another hope that that he lists off in verse 10. It says, I will cut off the chariot. From Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so we see that our second hope here is, is the hope for the second advent. So 
explain a little bit of Bible prophecy for you real quick. So when you look at Bible prophecy, it usually is fulfilled in stages. So it's not just an all-at-once type of thing always, okay? And so what we see with Jesus is that uh, this, the first advent of Jesus was done, right? He came, was the humble, meek king that, that they said he would be, and then he died and rose from the grave, right? But there's another aspect that he talks about when he's here on earth. He says he's going to come back again, right? Like that's, that's, the sec- that's another stage of that prophecy. So, so when he first came, he defeated the power of sin, right? So he, he defeated the power of sin in his first advent, but... In the second coming, he will save us from the presence of our sin for all of eternity. You see that? So so the Old Testament prophecy doesn't really distinguish between those stages, but because we know who Jesus is, he's come on the scene, we actually can understand and discern those stages. So that's where we find ourselves right now. So, brass tacks, many of the hopes and prophecies that you see in the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Christ, crucified and resurrected. However... The final consummation of it all is the hope that we have in the second advent, the second coming of Christ. So, so, so here's the question. What's, what's, what's great about the second advent that didn't already take place in the first one, right? Because we really like that first one. That's a good one, right? So, so what are we hoping in in this, this second advent? Well, I alluded to it just a second ago. See, the first advent, remember, brought about, uh, it conquered the power of sin in our life. But the truth of the matter is we're still present in sin, right? Like there's still sin around us. We live in what, with a world full of sin and death and chaos. And so the second advent brings, about the pre- brings us out of the presence of sin, I mean, just look at the news. Think about it. When you look at the news, and I do that once a, once a week, that's it. I can't handle it much more than that. But like when you look at the news, there's not a lot of good news out there, right? It's mostly bad news, and, and that's what we see. And so what he's saying is in the second advent, all of that's going to come to an end. When Christ comes back, all of that will be ended. According to verse 10, he will put to end both war and fighting. He will cut off the chariots, the war horse, and the battle bows. When he comes back, he will fully rule and reign and bring peace to every single nation. It says that his reign of peace will be from sea to sea and river to the ends of the earth. Basically, when he comes back, everything that you see is wrong will be made right. That's what he's saying. Uh, And I think, here's the thing, I think when we think about this reality of heaven and and that kind of thing, the image that comes in our head is really lame and boring. I'm just going to put that out there, right? Like, like the image that we usually have is like angels playing ukuleles on clouds and then baby angels. Like it's a really strange view for me. I don't understand it. But nonetheless, that's what we think of. And, and the Bible doesn't talk a lot about heaven, so maybe that's where that comes from. But man, it, it talks a little bit about heaven, and it's far less in the clouds and a lot more down to earth. So let's look at Revelation 21. Let me, let me just, just listen to the description. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. It describes not clouds and harps and baby angels, but a city. A city where God dwells literally with his people. He is there in the physical with them. Isn't that much more beautiful? Like, isn't that a better picture for us to have an expectant hope in? In the fact that, like, we're going to be in this beautiful place, this beautiful city with God. And catch this. 
he points out the fact that the main point isn't heaven itself, but the person of heaven, right? Like, that's what we gain in that. When Jesus comes back to make everything right, that's what the hope is in. Our hope is not in the place of heaven, but in the person of heaven. That's the goal. That's what we're moving toward. Often we think that this whole thing is about that we get, get heaven and don't get hell, when in reality it is we get Jesus. That's the main thing. Now, we get more and more of him, and yes, there will be joy, there will be a lack of chaos, there won't be any pain or suffering, which are all really great and beautiful things, but the even more hopeful and beautiful expectation and anticipation is that we get to be with him, that Jesus himself will be with his people as our king. Listen, this is a hopeful expectation. You know what expectation is, right? Like, this is what you expect to happen. Like, we can trust in the reality that this will happen. God has promised it, based on verse 10, that he will bring peace to all the nations. So if he can see through the first advent, then he sure can see through the second advent in his second coming. That God's people, according to Revelation 7, from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be doing this, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the picture. He gives us a glimpse. Isn't that great? Isn't that beautiful? That God will give us a a glimpse of our, our future reality because it says in that text that John looked out at the people and said, man, I see people from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping the God of salvation. He would give us this beautiful, just joyful image of, hey, this is what would I have for you. This is what's to come. We will be with God and he will be with his diverse people. And so as we wait for the second advent, the hope that is to happen, what, what do we do now? Like, what do we, who are we now and what do we do? Well, let's look at the last two verses, verse 11 and 12. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. And so as we wait, we are prisoners of hope for today. Prisoners of hope for today. So the blood of the covenant that's mentioned there is actually the bloodshed of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's actually God's sign and seal that he actually did conquer sin for us. And in the present, though, right now, we still sin, right? Like, am am I the only one that sins in the room? Okay. Uh, Like, we all still sin right now in the present. However, because of the blood of Jesus, the Christian life ought to be marked by progressively being freed from the sin in our life. So it's not just a prayer or an acknowledgement of Jesus at one time and now you're this good person. No, that's not the goal. The goal is to experience Christ and know him deeply so that he might transform you into his likeness. You see that? So it's not a a to-do list of let's be good people. It's a, a relationship with Jesus Christ himself. And so it's not good behavior, but it's good news that continues to save us. Does that make sense? And so we have been set free from the sin's power. Right? So, so, yes, we, walk, we have sin in our life, but the, it has no power over us. We have victory over it. We long for the day, yes, when we no longer are in the presence of that sin. And that's a beautiful longing. We should have that longing when sin is no more. Like that, that sin that you're still tempted by and it continues to anguish you, whether that be anger or lust or pride or whatever that might be, God says, I will get rid of that. You will no longer be in the presence of that. Or, or for your brother or sister or your friend or neighbor who you see them, like visually see them destroying their life with their sin, God says, I'll do away with that too. 
That's the hope that we have. And God here in verse 11 is telling us and telling them that this will for sure happen. That as we continue to fight out of the victory of the first advent, we will have the wait in hopeful expectation of the, the future advent, the second one, because we will no longer be in the presence of sin. And he says, man, this is a sure thing. It's a promise because of the blood of Jesus. It's going to happen. He's so sure that if you catch this in verse 11 here, when he says uh, he will free prisoners from the waterless pit. By the way, a waterless pit is just a pit, okay? It just doesn't have water. It's a hole. Anyway, so, so, but what he's talking about here, he, he refers to it in the present tense, right? So when you refer to something that hasn't happened yet in the present tense, what you're saying is it's already done. You ain't got to worry about it right? So that's what he's saying. He's speaking right now. It's already done. As a follower of Jesus, the call of the Christian in regard to our sin is to walk in that victory, that it's already done, that we can walk in the power of the gospel. And yes, we'll stumble. And yes, we will fall. However, the victory over sin has been won. And the power to fight that in the present comes from the first advent, the power of the gospel. Jesus did come and then the hopeful expectation that the second advent will happen and he'll be doing away with it altogether. That makes sense? So, and, and while we do that, here's what verse 12 says. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore you double. So as we anticipate this second advent, the second coming of Christ, we must find our fortress in the person of our hope, Jesus Christ. Right? Like, that's the stronghold that he's referring to. He's saying, hey, he used this beautiful language to say, continue to abide, return, lean into God. And then he calls us something so wonderful. He says, you are prisoners of hope. Meaning that we don't just sit down on our hands in fear of what's about to happen to the world before the king comes. We're not a fearful people. We're a hope-filled people. Meaning we don't fight as though the victory hasn't already been won. No, we are the victors already. So we hope not on our hands, but in hope. So we are captive, surrendered to, and kept safe by this hope that he's talking about that's coming. We are prisoners of hope. We walk and live in light of that hope. See, like, though we now see all is not right, we are given the honor, the privilege, the beauty of having an hopeful expectation to look beyond Beyond the current chaos, the hunger, the poverty, the war, your present circumstance, we can look beyond that and see that there's something better. That there's a kingdom that will rule and reign with an absence of sorrow and an absence of pain, and we'll have an ever-present peace with our king, really. Like, he will rule and reign. And that right there is our motivation, that's what motivates us right here and right now that, that we can continue on in this faith because we have a hope of Jesus' second advent and we trust in his first one. And so, so here's what I want us to do. As, as we wait, I want to speak some, uh, just a truth o- over us when it comes to hope and patience. So as I close, I want to read Romans 8, 18 through 25. And so this, this is what it looks like as we wait. This is, this is our application, so to speak. Just get in the mind of Paul. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know 
I love that. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Isn't that beautiful? That God would call us into a beautiful expectant patience as we wait for everything to be made right. And he gives us markers so that we continue to remember those things, right? So we got Christmas here in two days. We got two days. And here's what I want us to do. As we're thinking about that, it happened, right? Like it's not just a fact, like it's an event. It's something that really did happen. It's tangible, and then we have Easter, which is another just a reminder to say, hey, it happened. He really did resurrect from the grave, the only person to ever resurrect and continue to live forever. And then as a family, as City Light Church, every other week he's given us another marker as a family to take a meal. And, and so as you're coming up, here's what I want you to do. It is a physical piece of bread, and it is juice. It has no inherent value other than edible, Right? But I want you to contemplate just the reality, the depths of that reality. Let your soul just take in the fact that Jesus really did come. And he really did die, and he really did rise from the grave. And we got something to do with that, right? Like, we, we, have to res- we get to respond to that. And so when you dip it in the juice and you consume that, let that be what settles in your heart. That the next two days aren't about family. They're not about food. They're not about gifts, but they're about the fact that our king really did, he really did accomplish his promise and that he will come back again. Amen? Let's pray.